really difficult to ignore after a number of white supremacist incidents, both in the United States and internationally, that the U.S. remains having listed only one white supremacist organization when there have been calls to designate, again, a number of transnational groups that would not run up against problems in the U.S. context uh, with designating domestically-based organizations. Hi, I'm Anna Krane. I'm a senior research analyst at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. This week, we're looking at the designation of terrorist groups and how this relates to the legality of terrorist content online. Designation is a legal tool which allows governments to label countries as state sponsors of terrorism, as well as groups, and sometimes individuals, as terrorists. Throughout this episode, we explore the role designation plays in the fight against terrorism and how it can be used as a tool to tackle terrorist content online. We'll also analyze different countries' designation systems and discuss how they can be improved. My guests today are Dr. Anna Meyer, who's an assistant professor of political science and international relations at the University of Nottingham. Anna studies counterterrorism in Germany and the United States, with a particular interest in white supremacist violence and prescription policy. I'm also joined by Jason Blazakis, professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies and former director of the Counterterrorism Finance and Designations Office, Bureau of Counterterrorism at the US Department of State. And David Shanks, who's the chief censor of the New Zealand Classification Office. We also get insight from Archie McFarlane, who's a junior research analyst at Tech Against Terrorism. His focus is on understanding and contextualizing terrorist and violent extremist behavior online using open source intelligence. I asked Archie to explain why designation matters to Tech Against Terrorism. Designation is a topic that matters to Tech Against Terrorism because it's also a topic that matters to tech companies. Um, the majority of whom rely on designation lists to guide their moderation of terrorist and violent extremist content. So, for example, Zoom and Clubhouse, who we recently talked to on the podcast, have both explained that they rely on government lists, sort of US and international lists, to outline their own policies around um, terrorist content, and in particular, the kind of groups that they prescribe from their platforms. And additionally, it's important because especially smaller tech platforms don't have the expertise or the resources to sort of create their own lists. So they don't sort of have the research organization that, for example, uh, Facebook might have for this. So they sort of have to rely on external lists of nations and supranational institutions. Also, in terms of the terrorist content analytics platform or TCAP, designation is actually the basis of our inclusion policy. So we sort of rely on national and supranational lists in, to decide which groups' content we alert to tech platforms. So official content from groups in, on our inclusion policy is alerted to tech platforms, and then they have the choice whether to remove that content or not. We think this is a particularly important factor that has made our takedown rate so high in terms of tech platforms adhering to our alerts and removing content. We think that this is because we, we keep a very sort of narrow focus on designated terrorist organizations, and therefore this is based in the rule of law. Additionally, I think an, another important factor is uh, clarity. I think tech companies have got a serious challenge in terms of removing or, or locating terrorist content, especially when it's based on sort of online regulation with a definition such as, you know, 
this terrorist content is very subjective. So when it's content which is just from official content from designated terrorist groups, it keeps it quite simple for platforms um, and it makes it easier for them to identify and know the boundaries of which content they're removing. Another factor which has sort of um, sparked our interest in designation processes is our own frustration with the processes, um, especially because it, it guides our inclusion policy. Uh, we've noticed a, um, a serious lack of designation of far-right groups in comparison with Islamist groups, and also a lack of flexibility and timeliness in designation processes. So sometimes uh, groups won't be designated for years after, or um, the group might have even disbanded or changed name in that time. So how do countries, organisations or individuals get designated as terrorists? Well, it differs from country to country. But as Jason explains, in the US, there are several tools which can be used. We use the State Department's Foreign Terrorist Organization tool to sanction organizations as terrorist groups. We use Executive Order 13224 to sanction individuals and organizations. And EO13224 is a tool that the State Department shares with the Treasury Department. So the State Department and Treasury Department are what we would call the competent authorities for using that executive order. And then my office was also responsible for recommending to the Secretary of State which countries should be added to the state sponsor of terrorism list. So I think it's really important for listeners to understand that the State Department tends to look at terrorist designations through the lens of designating individuals, organizations, or countries. And the designation process is a very long one. I don't want to go over all that because that would take up the entire show. But the key thing is once an individual or organization is designated, there are a number of legal consequences that flow from the designation that do a number of things formally. It would cut the individual off, for instance, from the formal financial system. It would criminalize individual support, for instance, to a designated organization that might be on the State Department list. So if somebody tried to provide material support to, say, ISIS, which is a group on the State Department FTO list, they could be sent behind bars for 15 or 20 years in some cases. Um, And then if there's an individual who's a part of a designated foreign terrorist organization who's trying to come into the United States they would essentially be banned from entry in the United States. So there are immigration consequences as well attached to the designation. And if somebody's already in the United States and they're not a U.S. citizen, they could be um, sent out of the United States. But very likely, they probably would be prosecuted first, and then they would be sent back to the United States. Because if they were a known member of an FTO, um, they probably are inherently providing material support um, to the group in the U.S., probably would prosecute them and then send them back to their country. So in, in essence, that's kind of the three Um, primary consequences of a a designation. Uh, But there are other kinds of consequences, I think, that are important too, for instance. Um, You know, in theory, um, sanctions are designed to be preventative. They are not really supposed to be punitive. And with the eye of being preventative, the objective would be is to prevent people from wanting to provide support and thus deter people from providing support to a sanctioned group, for instance. So it ought to have some kind of deterrent effect. It also should have the effect of helping define what the threat is. Um, By adding these groups to the list, you're essentially saying that this is what we as a government see as the terrorist threat. So it's a really important um, communication tool as well. I see a public relations aspect to it. As Jason touched on there, the designation process can be very long and complicated. The one thing I'll say is um, one of the most significant frustrations I had while I was in the job was it's a very slow process um, of adding a group. 
And groups change their names a lot too. Groups change their names because they want to get around sanctions and circumvent them. And because the process is so slow, it takes time for governments, especially the U.S. government, to keep up with the name changes. And I think that makes the regime less impactful. The second issue I have, the State Department list has a lot of groups on it, quite frankly, that are defunct. Uh, it Really, there's a lot of politicization of this list, even though if a group is defunct, you're legally required to remove them. But there's groups on there that are defunct that are still on the list. So I think that cuts at the credibility of the list. In terms of individuals who have been listed in, in the past, for instance, or organizations, um, there are impacts that those designations may have at population levels that go beyond the individual organization you target. And to give you an example of this, the Trump administration at the end of the administration added a group that was known as like, we call the Houthis um, in Yemen. And by adding that group to the list, there was a lot of concern in the nonprofit community who are providing aid that's much needed in places like Yemen, that they were worried that they get caught up in the sanctions process because of the designation of the Houthis, and it would make aid delivery much more tenuous from a legal perspective for them um, because the Houthis were added to the list, this list. And th- you know, this would lead to uh, potential de-risking and, and moving out of uh, nonprofit workers and aid delivery um, assets from Yemen because of the addition of the Houthis to that list. And, it, and I think it was su- such a, a bad move by the Trump administration. In fact, like really early in the first couple of weeks of the Biden administration, they removed the Houthis from the list because they didn't want to make a, a terrible situation in Yemen even worse. So these are just a couple of examples. There's so many examples that people can, I think, point to about the, the potential downsides of, of designations and the secondary or third order effects of designation may have on communities that aren't really being targeted by the designation, but are still being impacted nonetheless. Anna says there are other issues too, specifically around designation lists being politicized. We see there's a lot coming up with lists that are starting to designate white supremacist groups. Um, And there is concern that in some of these cases, these designations are being used essentially as fig leaves to pacify domestic constituencies or particular calls for designation of white supremacist actors without any real impetus from security institutions, from governments, to go after these groups. I think the U.S. designation of the Russian imperial movement is actually a good example of this. In 2020, the U.S. designated uh, the Russian imperial movement, which is an ultranationalist white supremacist group in Russia, as a terrorist organization under Executive Order 13224, which mainly implements financial sanctions and asset freezes of various kinds. And it was painted as a really big deal because it was the first time the U.S. had ever done this. However, the U.S. chose a group that largely doesn't operate in the U.S., that is not a household name, had not really experienced calls from members of Congress, from civil society organizations or researchers to be designated, unlike some other groups that operated transnationally that the U.S. decided, no, we're not going to designate these groups, at least not yet. And so it chose this group that was largely non-controversial. I was like, yes, of course, we can designate them. It's not going to influence our relations with other countries. It's not going to cause domestic uproar in any way. And we can say we're going after white supremacist groups without really having to invest a lot of resources in doing that, either internationally or domestically and have to tread on some very uncomfortable political ground when groups are more closely affiliated with particular political parties or leaders, as unfortunately they often are in the U.S. Now, this is my own analysis of the situation. Uh, I think probably a lot of officials 
in the State Department and particularly in the Trump administration would read this case a little bit differently and present you with a different account. That said, I think that it's really difficult to ignore after a number of white supremacist incidents, both in the United States and internationally, that the U.S. remains having listed only one white supremacist organization when there have been calls to designate, again, a number of transnational groups that would not run up against problems in the U.S. context uh, with designating domestically based organizations. So that's one concern. The other thing I'll mention is I always get a little concerned whenever we expand the state security apparatus with respect to human rights. Historically, in the U.S., but also in the U.K. and a lot of European countries, whenever you expand the state's counterterrorism powers, those powers land most strongly and affect marginalized communities most heavily, even if they're not intended to target those communities. If you give the state more powers to surveil suspected terrorists, to go after particular leaders of groups as suspected terrorists, it can be argued that that's a slippery slope to targeting people the state doesn't like more generally, say activists, protesters. Uh, And you see very stark examples of this in more autocratic contexts in places like Russia, which is notorious for targeting journalists and labeling them as terrorists. Um, because they can do that under under Russian terrorism laws. It's a little bit more of an extreme example than democratic contexts, but it is a concern about whenever we expand security powers, how can we make sure that those are being used against actual threats to everyday people, to the security of a population overall, rather than against groups that a particular political administration may not like. As Anna mentioned, there is a lack of designation of white supremacist far-right groups by the U.S. Jason explains from his experience why he thinks that is. Not one uh, State Department group on that list would be one that you would characterize as a group that is uh, white supremacy-oriented type of organization. And th- there are a number of reasons for, for that. First, there is... Um, a very elaborate designations process that requires corroboration. So if you may have like open source information, for instance, that is indicative that a group is engaged in violent activity, the lawyers in the process would want to see in an ideal scenario, also corroborating information that the open source information is somehow verified by additional sources of information like intelligence. And because the U.S. system in terms of how it has thought historically since 9-11 about counterterrorism has put all of its eggs in essentially one basket, and that is collecting information on Salafi jihadist groups and not really paying any attention to uh, transnational white supremacist groups. And for that reason, I think the offices uh, that are responsible for sanctioning white supremacist groups or any terrorist group for that matter, like the State Department and Treasury Department, may not simply have the information they need to develop the evidentiary required to designate these groups. Um, A lot of these white supremacist groups overseas are really connected. They are transnational and they may have connections to U.S.-based entities. And the United States can't designate groups that are domestically based. So you have a lot of domestic groups that are just like taboo to touch for the U.S. Like designating the Proud Boys, for instance, would be impossible given the legal authorities in the United States. Like, they just don't exist as legal authorities. And because some of these groups are interconnected to other groups overseas, like the Proud Boys have chapters overseas, if you designate it. Um, but if you were to do one of these international chapters, what would the implications be for the U.S. chapter? And the lawyers probably would want to go through a really elaborate process to try to understand whether or not um, there would be some bleedage over into the domestic space 
And what would that mean, for instance? So I think these are the challenges that have led to a situation that despite the fact that the Biden administration has a great domestic you know, extremism strategy, that you still haven't seen a group added to the list yet. Um, so it's this combination of domestic and intelligence and these other issues that I think have made this issue really complex. Let's talk to Anna about the German system of designation, which is an interesting case in how it differs from the US as well as other European countries. Well, on the surface, this is a distinction without a difference insofar as we're using different terminology to describe the same sorts of groups. So in Germany, white supremacist far-right groups have long been prescribed for decades as anti-constitutional in the sense that they go against German values. What are those? Unclear. But the point being that these are groups that don't fit within conceptions of how the German state and how people in the German state are supposed to operate and conduct themselves. And so there's actually quite an extensive list of far-right groups that the German state has banned under this particular mechanism. And that banning works very similarly to a lot of terrorist designation processes in countries like the US or the UK. It's illegal to be a member of this group. It's illegal to possess and distribute propaganda and information from these groups. These are similar consequences that we apply to terrorist groups in other countries. But the label is different. Does that matter? I think on some symbolic level, it might. Um, On a very practical level, it makes comparisons across countries extremely messy um, because it makes it possible to say that Germany doesn't ban terrorist organizations, which is technically true, but obscures the fact that it is doing something along those lines. But it does then make it difficult when you're talking about things like terrorist prescription and going after far-right terrorists online, and you have, say, a tech company in the U.S. that is used to thinking about terrorism in a particular way and looking for a terrorism list. It doesn't find one. It's like, oh, I don't have to do anything in, in Germany, which is not true. So, so that's the German case, I think, is a, a good example of a case where There has been a lot of movement towards going after these groups, but nevertheless, there's a sense that the German government does not take far-right terrorism very seriously, perhaps because that label of terrorism and all of the social opprobrium uh, and the legal consequences that can come with that don't necessarily apply to those groups or might have to be applied in an additional stage with a formal charge of a crime of terrorism if that group actually commits a violent act. But a lot of these groups don't commit violent acts anymore, or are maybe a bit more social protesty, activisty, and so don't necessarily fit mental scripts of terrorist organizations. Let's now look at something we're particularly interested in attack against terrorism. What the designation of terrorist groups means for what they post online. Back to Anna. So speaking very generally, uh, if a group is prescribed as quote unquote terrorist, then certain kinds of content that they post online also becomes illegal. This is most obvious in jurisdictions that are not the U.S., where it is possible to ban possession of particular material. I'm very conscious of this now, having been trained in the U.S. but working in the U.K., whereas previously I could just go and look for extremist material if I wanted to do research on it. Now I cannot do that, Um, and neither can my students. And you have to go through layers and layers of ethical and legal approval to get that done. So in a very practical sense, in a country like the UK, if you ban a group as terrorist, then it becomes illegal to disseminate content from that group or about that group online. And tech platforms of all sizes have an obligation then 
to go after that content and when they find it to take it down or they can face very hefty fines. In the US, again, this gets complicated. Companies like Facebook will will say that we're going to follow the law and the law to us means that if a group has been designated as terrorist, we have to take down their content if we find it. That, of course, is complicated in practice just because of the sheer volume of content, but that's the goal, at least. And that's the standard that a lot of tech companies use. They may choose to apply additional standards and ban other groups' content themselves on their own platforms. And companies might do this, especially with white supremacist organizations, but that's really up to the company. Uh, There's no legal mechanism that can force them to do that. So you're taking the issue of regulating violent extremist content online, and you're putting it in the hands of private companies that are also dealing with profit motives, which I think we've seen quite seriously are rarely going to be overcome uh, unless there's a huge public outcry as happened with Donald Trump, for example, on Twitter. But also then feasibility for some platforms. It's it's one thing to tell a company like Facebook that if we report a terrorist post to you and you don't remove it within an hour, uh, as was originally proposed under the Netzdege law in Germany, then you'll be fined 50 million euros. It's a different thing to tell a small platform that they have to do that. Even if they really want to, they may just simply not have the capacity to keep up with that. So I know I'm blending questions a little bit here, but I think like the, the practical issue of what companies have to do, A, varies a lot from country to country. Regardless of that variation, companies generally go with, well, if legally this group is banned as terrorists, we're going to take down their content, which is nice to see. But the actual ability to do that can become quite complicated and really difficult for for smaller platforms. And then the last thing I'll say on this is that when you have different groups designated in different countries, that can also become a problem. So a lot of the the big tech companies that we're talking about are headquartered in the United States, where, as has been mentioned, we have relatively lax laws about dissemination of propaganda online. And we also can't designate a lot of domestic white supremacist groups. So That is not to say that then if Facebook is operating in, say, the United Kingdom, where a group, a white nationalist group is banned, that they're not required to then mask that content out or or make it unavailable to users in the UK. They are, and they're usually pretty good about doing that. But it does then get complicated if you're trying to build international regulations uh, and cooperation between governments and tech platforms. Whose laws are you going to follow? The U.S. is not a country that, largely speaking, subscribes to U.N. terrorist designations. It acknowledges them, but it duplicates them in its own domestic law. Obviously, it doesn't subscribe to EU terrorist designation laws. So the U.S. really defaults to its own preferences. And my concern is that those preferences then become internationalized, for better or for worse. So as we've heard, it's not always clear what designation means for tech companies moderating terrorist content especially when considering different jurisdictions and different systems. A recent example which illustrates this is the status of Taliban content online. As Archie explains, the Taliban's previous designation as a terrorist organization has been complicated by the fact they're now the de facto government of Afghanistan. Certain individuals have been designated by the UN. Um, It remains designated by Canada. However, it has not been designated by um, authorities such as the EU. And therefore, obviously, this creates confusion. For example, members of the EU who are unsure whether to um, follow sort of EU or UN guidance. Another issue is the global recognition of the Taliban government. Um, So different countries have a different stance on this. For example, Iran and China have recognized the Taliban government. 
whereas other countries such as the UK and France have not. Um, and ultimately what this does is it sort of leaves tech companies to make the decisions on whether they consider the Taliban as either a legitimate government or a terrorist group, um, and therefore moderating content based on that decision, which they have to uh, decide rather than obviously democratic governments. In terms of um, different tech platform policy, this sort of demonstrates the confusion. For example, Twitter um, has sort of allowed Taliban content to remain on their platform and only remove it if it threatens or promotes terrorism or violent extremism. This has sort of allowed the Taliban to utilize, uh, utilize Twitter quite strongly, as we also discussed in a previous podcast. For example, the Taliban spokesman, um, members of the Haqqani network, um, have, amassed, have amassed tens of thousands of followers on Twitter. And interestingly, members of the Haqqani network um, remain designated by the US. And then when you look at Meta, um, they have had a completely opposite policy. They've banned Taliban content, um, apart from a few instances recently, um, where they believe the content is in the public interest. For example, government accounts, which are now run by the Taliban, such as the Ministry of Health, um, have allowed content to be fit posted on Facebook, which, for example, uh, gives guidance on uh, COVID regulations um, and similar issues. Finally, I'll, I'll mention uh, YouTube. So they've banned Taliban content and they've actually based this on the US designation under Executive Order uh, 13129. But interestingly, this uh, Taliban is not actually on the US foreign terrorist organization list. So it, it's sort of a decision by by YouTube to refer to designation to justify its own policies. Um, hence, designation can be used in a way that is convenient or suits platform policies. A final point I would mention is that tech companies must also consider different online regulations based on the jurisdiction that they uh, are based so obviously this can create further confusion, especially for smaller platforms who are unsure of the uh, what the regulation actually means for them in, in, in that particular jurisdiction. Now, we've talked a lot about the challenges of designating countries and groups, but what about individuals? Jason explains how this process works in the US. So the State Department has a, a unique authority where it can designate individuals without a group's underlying designation actually being in place. And in fact, when I was at the State Department, we designated senior members of the Haqqani Network before the Haqqani Network was ever designated. We designated uh, senior members of Boko Haram before Boko Haram was designated as an organization. Um, Treasury Department has to essentially piggyback on another designation. Essentially, they couldn't do the same. They need an underlying group designation. So the State Department does have, in theory, great capability to go after lone actors, should they meet the legal criteria? Loan actors, though, because they're not organizationally affiliated, um, the types that we could think of, like Brent and Tarrant, for instance, you know, the Dylan Roofs of the world, you don't actually really know who they are until they actually do their act of terror. And then if they're arrested, um, then they're behind bars and then people could argue that what's the effect really um, beyond the symbolic of designating somebody like that? And I would argue like the symbolic effect is actually quite extraordinary um, and probably would be considered. And the executive order the State Department um, designates individuals under is written in the past tense. So it says, you know, has committed acts of terrorism. So even though they may be arrested, in theory, somebody that has committed an act of terrorism 
like Brenton Tarrant and has been arrested. And even though Brenton Tarrant's going to be behind bars forever, um, in theory, could meet the legal criteria. The lawyers will say, well, they don't present a, a credible threat in the future. So why, why do that? Um, so I, I do think it could be an easy way, for instance, for the uh, uh, government to show some interest in the white supremacy challenge by actually going after specific individuals. But again, because quite often these individuals are not organizationally affiliated, they have small networks, you don't learn about them in advance, and thus you probably don't have a lot of intelligence on them in advance of their event that they may be carrying out, right? So in that sense, it is difficult to pursue prior to the event. And ideally, you designate individuals prior to something that they carry out because sanctions regimes should be preventative in theory, right? So, you know, there again, there is no great answer here. But in theory, this can be done by the State Department. Um, and I think it has been underutilized and it could be a unique way to try to get at some of these challenges regarding white supremacists. So I, I would be personally looking at, for instance, individuals within um, white supremacist groups based overseas um, and, and looking at them as individuals as opposed to maybe the groups that, that are perhaps more difficult to, to pursue. Anna says in many countries, it's just not possible to designate so-called lone actors. It's not possible in the UK. It's not possible in Germany. A good example, I think, and this was explained to me by a German bureaucrat at one point, is that um, Anders Breivik, um, the Oslo white nationalist shooter, pretty obviously a terrorist, widely considered a terrorist, would not have been able to be charged with terrorism under German law, because under German law, terrorism is something committed by a group of at least three people. And Anders Breivik was not part of a group of at least three people, so legally, he is not a terrorist. So that is one problem, um, is that some legal structures just simply aren't equipped to deal with that. What sort of becomes more complicated after that, and I think this is especially relevant for how we think about white supremacists uh, and far-right individuals, is that the characterization of these people as lone actors is often a misnomer, at least if we expand our understanding of how we think about organizations and networks. Uh, a lot of designation mechanisms and how we think about terrorism more generally is designed around, we assume people are affiliated with a terrorist group, they've officially joined that group, and if they haven't, then they're a lone wolf, which obscures how a lot of people actually interact with these groups. Um, somebody like Timothy McVeigh, for example, the Oklahoma City bomber, can attend meetings of white nationalist groups in Oklahoma and Missouri and Kansas uh, and can be very close friends with people in these groups. And that, to me, is an organizational affiliation, even if that person is not a member of these groups. Brenton Tarrant, we know, drew heavily on ideas from, for example, Combat 18, which is a British white nationalist group, which is, in fact, prescribed in a number of countries. And so... If we rethink a little bit what we mean by institutional affiliation, then I think a lot of these individuals no longer become as clearly lone actors. And we return to the problem of how do we designate white supremacist and far right groups? But perhaps part of the answer to that is changing our conception of what an organization is and thinking about how to perhaps change these mechanisms to deal with looser networks um, or looser kinds of affiliations and that perhaps is actually a practical way of changing the law that could actually be helpful. So is designation the best system to deal with terrorist content online? I think it's imperfect, but all systems are. The benefit of using designation as a basis is that it gives companies a list of groups to go after. That list becomes complicated. Group might change their names. They might become defunct. 
people might use dog whistles or subtleties to signal that they're affiliated with that group that a non-specialist might not pick up on. But it's still a basis to start with, and it gives non-experts, which frankly most people working for tech companies are, some sort of guidance when they're dealing with things that are not the big obvious groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS. So that's a potential benefit uh, of using lists as a basis. The problem with a list and the problem with any tool here is that listing is political. Who we consider a terrorist is political. And sort of the utopian vision of fundamentally changing the biases embedded in who we do and don't consider a terrorist is the utopian vision (laughs) and is not something that a platform like Tech Against Terrorism can do by itself um, or that any country really has a vested interest in doing on its own. Um, So you're always going to run up against politicization of the terrorism category itself, whether you're using a designation list, a ban list, a list that a company makes up, no list, but some sort of guidelines for what sort of content you're going to go after. You can't avoid biases embedded in that. And so I think a much larger, longer term political project has to be education and thinking about how these biases infiltrate our ideas about what terrorism is, getting more specialists in company rooms, designing these products that companies use to go after um, these things, but also really implementing things like review boards um, and realizing that none of this is ever going to be perfect. And this has to be an ongoing conversation. We're not going to wake up one day and go, finally, we have solved the problem of terrorist content online. We have the perfect system. It's We've, we've done it. That This is an ongoing process and conversation that companies and governments have to decide that they're really invested in. And how can designation processes be improved? Let's hear Jason's thoughts on the US system. The one thing I think that needs to be improved is the timeline in which FTO designations are reviewed, for instance. And this, this doesn't get at the white supremacy challenge per se, but You know, FTO designations are reviewed every five years. In the early days of the FTO regime, if you didn't finish a review, the reviews were being done every two years. If you didn't finish a review, the group fell off the list. And I think first and foremost, the credibility of the list is is at question. And I think it's at question because these reviews, they happen on a rolling basis. Um, If it begins, say, in 2018, the review, um, and it doesn't end it to 2023, just because you start the review in a five-year period of time, it doesn't mean you have to finish it in five years. So I think the first thing is, I think Congress actually needs to look at the underlying law, um, which is in the Immigration and Nationality Act, and make adjustments to the underlying law and actually um, force the State Department to finish a review in a certain time period, um, in a time period ideally shorter than five years, maybe three years, for instance. Two years is, is a lot. You're constantly reviewing groups on the list. Um, so I think that would add... Uh, dynamism to to the list if you actually shorten the review process. I I think the world has changed significantly since the law was created um, in 1996, and then the first FTOs, 30 of which were added in 1997. And I think you really have to go back and look at the legal criteria too, and think about what does terrorism mean today in in a very digital world that may not have meant in 1996 when the law was created. Um, And I think things have changed I think how groups operate online needs to be a factor that's considered by the State Department and Treasury Department in the context of terrorist designations in ways in which the legal criteria simply does not allow for that. What does that mean precisely? I think it does mean looking at 
the interactions between groups, domestic actors and transnational actors in the exchange of, of finance, for instance, um, as one example. Could it mean propaganda and ideology? For the United States, I think that would be difficult, given the fact that the United States has the First Amendment. But I think it needs to be looked at, at least. I, I think these are difficult challenges that can be navigated with sophisticated lawyering. And if you know, the United States doesn't have enough of one thing, we have plenty of lawyers who are really bright and can come up with better definitions, I think. So I, I think they need to get back to the, the legal criteria and, and, and make some adjustments. Uh, I think how the United States thinks about the third prong for designation of an FTO, there's three criteria. Group has to be foreign based. The second is they have to engage in terrorist activity. And I think that that needs to be potentially broadened. And the third is um, that terrorist activity has to be a threat against U.S. national security interests. And, and I think looking at that third criteria also could be important, particularly through the lens of what are U.S. national security interests? How have they changed since 1996? So those are a few of the things I, I would do. The most important thing, though, is not really designations related, but intelligence community related is to actually start collecting information on these groups in a really robust manner. Um, and I know the U.S. system is probably distracted by Russia, Ukraine, for instance. And I think there has been a deprioritization of terrorism and counterterrorism more generally. So this ask could be a really big ask. So I wouldn't say it's an easy ask. It may sound easy on paper, but I think it is really difficult in practice. But I think that's one of the first things that need to be done to have perhaps a, a list that's more balanced that just doesn't have Salafi jihadist groups on it. Let's move away from designation systems and talk about another perspective on tackling terrorist content online. We're going to take a look at New Zealand, a country which does have a designation system, but one which does not have a direct effect on online content. Instead, they have a classification office, which categorises objectionable content, which has an impact on the legality of that material, both offline and online. A classification office in the New Zealand context is a media regulator and a fairly unusual media regulator in that we cover commercial content like films, DVDs, and increasingly streaming content. But also, in addition to that, we cover um, what we call crown material. That's, that's material that may be criminal, that may require prohibition, what we call objectionable, um, unlawful material. That can span from child sexual abuse material to material that promotes and details how to carry out crimes, or in this case, uh, terrorist and violent extremist material. We, we operate as a regulator under 1993 legislation. Um, I, I think that legislation provides a very useful framework in that it is all about prevention of harm and balancing the need to prevent harm that may come from certain types of content with um, our Bill of Rights freedoms of access uh, to information and freedom of expression. So that balance is core in the work that we do. But I would, uh, I would note it's 1993 legislation, so it was designed at a time when effectively the internet was in its infancy. And that, that has some ongoing issues and challenges for us in, in the context of 2022. For the context of this discussion, we are not restrained by designations of terrorist entities. 
we um, can essentially evaluate material on its face as to whether we think it promotes uh, terrorist causes and may create a risk to the public by virtue of that. So that introduces some degrees of freedom that I think are important in, in the modern context, but also some challenges as well. Finally, I'd, I'd note that a classification office in the context of Aotearoa New Zealand is an independent Crown entity. So that means we are a part of the Crown, but we're not subject to direction by the Crown. We're not subject to direction by a minister or political interest as a whole. And I think that's vitally important in the context of a regulator who ultimately is making decisions that impact on individual freedoms of speech and access to information. David and his team at the Classification Office faced an unprecedented challenge in March 2019, when they were forced to respond to an attack in which a gunman opened fire at two mosques in Christchurch, killing 51 people. This country had never experienced anything remotely like that before, but I think it was also somewhat unprecedented in terms of its impact on the globe and the internet in terms of what we had in the case of this attack was was a horrendous, vicious and cold-blooded terrorist attack that was live-streamed and picked up by social media algorithms across all of the major social media platforms. So that live stream was watched by a relatively small number of individuals as it was live streamed, but many of those individuals immediately transferred that product, that terrorist promotional video and product onto other platforms and to some extent, algorithms did the rest in terms of people engaging with it. Um, in terms of my engagement, uh, it was a high cycle emergency response phase where I was engaged with police and authorities, our digital safety unit at DIA, who's responsible for addressing and enforcing the classifications that, that we impose. And Essentially, what became clear was that we needed to balance a rapid law enforcement response and an industry engagement response. Effectively, what became evident uh, soon into the response phase was that there were concerted efforts online by certain individuals who were sharing information about how to adjust the live stream video product in a way that would evade the hash algorithms operating on social media platforms to take it down. So essentially it was a war. You had a war between certain actors who were wanting to see this product distributed as far as possible and a a battle with uh, social media platform safety units as well as law enforcement. We um, accelerated our official classification of that publication to the nth degree. Normally a classification of something that was terrorist promotional would take uh, a number of weeks, which meant that law enforcement agencies and the like had you know, a rapid decision that they could act on and mobilise around. I would note that effectively we were able to identify this product as a terrorist promotional product and banned for that and for other reasons in terms of its promotion of graphic violence. But 
in this case, we didn't have a clear terrorist group or we didn't have a designated terrorist individual who was responsible for this attack, but we could see all the branding, we could see in the video, all of the coding told us that this was the act of a white supremacist, ideologically driven attacker. This attack was a composite product. So essentially, um, the terrorist in this case had thought through very carefully what they wanted to achieve understood to to quite some degree what the impact um, of their actions would be in terms of the response of the internet and media and they had alongside the the live stream video of the attack they produced their uh, so-called manifesto or their document setting out their ideology and setting out their rationale as to why others should follow suit and do the same as them um, an increasingly common package amongst uh, extremists and particularly extremists driven by this type of ideology. So we needed to work that through. That took us a few more days to work through. That's uh, That was a lengthy document and somewhat more complex in terms of the fact that we were aware um, already that there were a number of documents of this kind put out by mass killers in the past um, and we hadn't uh, had the opportunity really to engage with that sort of product. But as we worked through our framework and applied the systems and processes that we had applied to what you might call classically terrorist organization designated promotional products from the likes of ISIL and Al-Qaeda, this document ticked all the same boxes. It was branded, it set out the ideological basis, it called out to, to previous um, influences or so-called thinkers of this ideology. As we've touched on before on the podcast, the human side of content moderation is sometimes overlooked. The same is true for the classification officer's work in classifying potentially abhorrent and graphic material. David describes some of the kinds of violent extremist content he comes across in his role and some of the dilemmas he grapples with when classifying it. I started as Chief Censor back in 2017 and at that point in time the classification office had already had quite an extensive um, set of experience and background in in dealing with terrorist and violent extremist content of of various kinds. I would say um, the majority probably the majority of the engagements were referral of material to the classification office by law enforcement agencies um, that would relate to almost technical um, guides, bomb making guides, um, uh, books detailing how to, you know, create weapons and the like. Um, That formed a significant part of um, our earlier consideration. And, and that relates to, I think, the nature of the transition of what publications are, um, because actually we're looking at books and magazines and kind of physical objects in the earlier part of the history of the office, whereas increasingly, of course, this material and what we're talking about as publications go online. They become digital products and products that are shared online. And in connection with that, when um, shortly after my arrival, we started to see, you know, we we, we had dealt with a number of um, uh, Al-Qaeda publications, ISIL publications, promotional um, uh, magazines and guides for for followers, um, 
detailing how how to carry out attacks, the ideology that that might um, persuade certain people to carry out attacks and the like. Um, shortly after I um, took the role as chief censor, um, we started seeing some other types of potentially violent extremist material. Um, these were social media posts. These were, you know, um, digital uh, platform products that um, were challenging to assess because many of these products that we saw referred were depicted extremely violent events, um, brutal, brutal killings um, often. But it was very difficult in many cases to determine that this was promotional of what it was depicting. So um, we were seeing something dreadfully uh, awful graphic happen, um, but it wasn't clear in some cases that actually it was produced in order to promote um, or support um, what, what was being depicted. And that raises a very important point in this area because um, as we're seeing right now, roll out across the internet, the world can be a very, very brutal place and, and horrendous things can happen. Um, but if you are going to the extent of going, well, our protective function means that um, something depicting a, a brutal killing should be, should be banned or prohibited, um, then you're in a very, very difficult space. You're in a space where, for example, the video of the George Floyd killing um, could be argued to be unlawful and prohibited. And in my view, that would be a very bad and out adverse outcome. The world is a brutal place. Sometimes um, recording that fact can have value in various ways that, are, that can be difficult to assess. So we were grappling with some of those sorts of issues back in... Um, uh, 2017, 2018, and then of course the um, the attacks of March 15, 2019 happened um, in Christchurch, and post that period we have seen a ramp up right across the board in terms of uh, enforcement activity and uh, attention in this space, which results in a, a wider variety of referrals to us. So when considering the classification of terrorist publications, how do David and his team balance considerations around harm with protecting freedom of expression online? It is so important to protect freedom of expression. It's so important to have the rights of access to information front and centre in, in any consideration in this space. But you do need to think through and grapple with what does that mean in terms of the responsibilities to prevent harm and to prevent radicalisation and to act in, in a clear way where material does go beyond some kind of a line. And the challenge uh, for me as the Chief Censor applying 1993 legislation to the current digital world is that one of the powers that I have as Chief Censor is I can call in a publication that I think might present harm to the public. And by virtue of how our definitions work in our legislation, a publication means effectively any product on the internet, any post, any social media post, potentially any digital message is captured as a publication. And we're talking about a world where 500 hours of video content uh, goes up on YouTube every minute, and that's just one platform. So how do you apply a power like that in terms of 
trying to keep a, a population or a nation safe from harmful content. And so the Oslo um, Terrorist Manifesto was was an example of how we seek to balance all of those competing considerations because there's no point at lashing out at the internet and just just trying to you know address every every harmful item but it seems to us that there are some key reference texts or tomes that actually drive a whole um, ideology ideology or terrorist framework in terms of um, white supremacists or, or great replacement theorists, the Oslo terrorist work is a key ref- referential text. Um, so it, it seems that if you're dealing with anyone who's um, interested in following that ideology, perhaps radicalised, perhaps planning an attack, the likelihood is they'll have that document in, in their library. They'll they'll be aware of it and, and they'll have possession of it. Now, this was highlighted by our Royal Commission of Inquiry into the um, March 15 terror attacks in Christchurch, which looked into, to some degree, what was the inspirations and references for the Christchurch terrorist. And the, um, the work of the uh, Oslo terrorist was highlighted very much so as a, as a key reference and influence to the attack on Christchurch. So given that, it did seem remarkable to us that this hadn't been addressed in a formal way before. Um, this, this attack occurred in, in 2011. And if you look at that piece of work, it is you know approximately 1,500 pages long. It's extremely detailed about weapons and tactics. It's a, it's a, it's a relatively comprehensive how-to guide that if it was produced by a designated terrorist group, no one would have any difficulty in identifying what it is as um, an extremely harmful promotional guide. Given the Royal Commission inquiry, given the clear influence of that document on a a terrorist who conducted such a horrific attack in in, um, the territory of New Zealand, it seemed really obvious to us that that was a candidate for call-in and assessment and review. But we were also very careful of that balance that you note about, well, but how, how do you reconcile the fact that this is a publication that has been available for a decade, has been in, in some cases sold in hard copy form, um, available by online booksellers for a period, and forms in some respect part of the historical record around those attacks. How do you, how do you reconcile those two things here we have something that's very promotional it's harmful it's had appears to have contributed to to a horrific attack and yet there is you know genuine interest in accessing this information to understand uh, and to gain some understanding as to what might have been the motivations for this attacker so our our means of reconciling um, that tension was to actually consult and to consult with um, affected communities, religious communities, uh, industry voices, survivors, essentially talk to the people that appeared to us to have valuable insights and perspectives on how to strike that balance. In in that uh, difficult job, an incredibly good faith and helped inform our ultimate uh, result, which was to say, well, yeah, look, there are legitimate interests and freedom of speech issues here, but the harm in this case presented in, in the context of Aotearoa New Zealand, given in particular what we know was its direct influence on um, this 
horrific historical attack on New Zealand soil means that it is an unlawful banned publication for for our purposes. Let's hear from David about what he thinks could be done specifically to tackle terrorist content online. Look, in my view, what what would make tackling terrorist content online more effective? It's to start with better, clearer international collaboration and consistency. That's always going to be a challenge, but I think we can do a lot better than we are currently doing. I think the Christchurch call that was put in place following the attacks in Christchurch is an interesting and potentially very significant step towards greater international and industry collaboration in this area, which is which I think is absolutely mission critical to um, achieving more effective responses to terrorist content. But much more than that, I think if you're really serious about tackling terrorist, terrorist content online, you need to be thinking through what is your integrated strategy. I, I don't believe it is ever going to work if essentially you're just operating in a response mode where effectively you're just looking to deal with terrorist content ever quicker or even more efficiently. Over the last year, here at Tech Against Terrorism, we've been working on a research project which examines national and supranational designation processes across 11 democratic governments, as well as the EU and the United Nations, and the relationship to the online realm. I'm going to let Archie explain more about the project. Some of the questions we've been looking at to answer for each designation system is firstly sort of the type of system it is, whether it's um, being called um, political prescription or designation or banning. Um, There's lots of different names for similar processes and the legal basis behind the system. Um, A second factor we've looked at is what does designation actually mean for online content? So um, how can tech platforms sort of interpret designation? Are there any legal implications for them? Thirdly, what are the human rights safeguards in place? Or what are the sort of issues with human rights that certain systems have? And finally, we sort of provide our own recommendations um, on how designation processes can be improved, particularly relating to the effect on the online realm. So some of the recommendations, obviously it's dependent on each system. We've tailored them to each system we look at, but I can summarize some general recommendations we have. If a um, country does have a designation list, then we um, advise that it should be transparent and clear, especially for tech companies to uh, find, find it and understand it. A theme that we notice throughout is that a lot of these systems have not considered the threat of far-right groups. So we advise considering the threat of far-right groups and designating more far-right groups. Um, We also advise that there should be uh, regular review processes and a clear appeal mechanism to ensure human rights are upheld. Um, And finally, as, as mentioned earlier, we want these systems to be more flexible and responsive to threat so that they're not sort of designating groups which are no longer a threat or have changed names or yeah or no longer are relevant in terms of our main recommendation this relates to how designation ties to online regulation so we believe that governments should set uh, speech norms around terrorism through legislation and we believe that designation is an opportunity to ground online counterterrorism in the rule of law rather than for example tech companies adjudicating 
We'll be releasing the report in the coming weeks, so keep an eye out on our Twitter if you're interested in the project. A huge thanks to this week's guests, Anna Meyer, Jason Blazakis, and David Shanks, and to Archie from Tech Against Terrorism for his thoughts. To find out more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism, where you can find resources on today's topic. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for another episode. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.